Ecclesiastes 7. Sermon tonight is titled, This is Better Than That. So, many commentators, as I was studying this week, made an observation that Ecclesiastes 7, some of them think 8, somewhere in between 7 and 8, there's a transition point in the book. Uh, I think it probably begins in 7. And I think the transition is not so much ideas, truths, what's being presented, but how it's being presented. I think the back half of the book reads a little bit differently than the front half of the book. And so I just, at a transition point, want to remind you of the overall course that we've charted in Ecclesiastes. And it's Ecclesiastes chapter 1. You can hold your spot in 7. It's Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2 and verse 3. And the guiding question that the book is wrestling with is in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And the answer, initially, and that is repeated throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, is in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So I just want to draw your attention to some of these words that we've talked about over and over and over again now that we're about halfway through the book. The first word is gain. What do we gain? That's an economic term. It's not talking about what do we gain in our pocketbooks, but it's talking about in life, how can you come out on the right side of things at the end? How can you come out ahead, spiritually speaking, at the end of your life? What can we gain for all of our toil? Toil means your nine to five. It means your family life. It means your church life, it means your hobbies, it means everything that you do in this world, that is your toil. What do we gain for all of our toil under the sun? And that phrase, under the sun, is more of a time stamp than a GPS coordinate. In English, we would say, what do we gain for all of our toil? We show up and immediately we're on the clock. Your clock starts ticking the moment that you're born. So you're living life under the sun. We use the sun to mark our days, to mark our seasons, to mark our time. We're living life under the sun. What do we gain for all of this? And the conclusion of the book is, well, it's all vanity. And vanity, some translations use the word meaningless. It sounds very negative. It sounds very pessimistic, very fatalistic, very depressing, very miserable. And if you've ever set out to read Ecclesiastes and you read those opening verses, you thought, well, I don't want to read the rest of this. I'm just going to skip to something happier. And so you skipped and you went to Song of Solomon and you said, well, I don't know what to do with that. And then you went to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and you thought, well, that's not any happier. Maybe I should go back to Ecclesiastes. Vanity is not really the best English translation for, I think, what the author is trying to communicate and you see in the very graphic that I use every week on your handout and on the screen, it's smoke. That's what the word hebel in Hebrew, H-E-B-E-L in English, hebel in Hebrew literally means is smoke, a mist, a vapor, a breath, a sigh. Life under the sun goes quick. And so the question that this book is trying to deal with is how can we come out ahead at the end of our very brief life, thinking about all the things that we do 
while we're under the sun, while we're on the clock. So that's the direction that the book is going. Americans tend to think about our lives only in the present. We don't have much of a historical sense as Americans. We don't have much of a sense of the future. We just sort of live for the moment. That's the advice that the world gives us. The book of Ecclesiastes is saying you should go to the end now and live life backwards today in light of where you're going in the end. So just a couple of quotes as we begin. Zach Eswine has a book called Recovering Eden. And I'm going to talk tonight about the connections. We've talked about this recently. The connections between Ecclesiastes and the book of Genesis. So his book on Ecclesiastes titled Recovering Eden. The sooner we come to terms with our death, the wiser our life has the chance to become. Our death informs our prayers and our life. So if you were here when we looked at Ecclesiastes 5, 1 to 7, we talked a lot about prayer. We talked about how the themes of Ecclesiastes ought to shape the way that we pray, the way that we worship, the way that we talk to God, the way that we relate to God. So Eswine is saying, understanding this book changes the way you pray, and especially tonight in chapter 7, it changes the way that we live. Here's a quote from David Gibson. Once we grasp the big message of Ecclesiastes, that life in this world eludes our control, how then... Should we live? That's where you're at in Ecclesiastes. If you've tracked through the book to this point, you're fully aware, I am not in control of my life. My life is hebel. It's smoke. It's mist. It's a vapor. I'm not in control of it. So what in the world should I do with it? And there's really a very limited number of things that you could conclude as a human being that you should do with your life. One would be, Well, you only live once. YOLO. Carpe diem. Get after it. You don't have tomorrow, so do as much. Maximize your fun, your pleasure, your enjoyment, whatever in the moment, because you may not have it tomorrow. Just be a hedonist. Live for instant and immediate gratification. Sound like the culture you live in? Another option, and some of you have felt the tug of this as we've gone through Ecclesiastes, is to go home, curl up in a ball, wrap a blanket around yourself, and say, I'll see you in the fall when you're preaching on something else. Because this is depressing, and it's dark, and you keep talking about death, and we're Americans, and we don't like to think about death, we don't want to talk about it, and it's just hard. The book is so honest, and you live in a culture that is not honest to you, and does not ask you to think about serious things, that being asked to think about serious things is hard. Or option three, this is what the preacher is suggesting, you could find wisdom. You don't have to be a hedonist. You don't have to be depressed. You could chart the middle road there and you could be a wise person. And that's what we're seeking to find tonight. Derek Kidner. With his sure touch, the author now brings in a stimulating change of style and approach. So this is where we talked about a transition in the book. Instead of reflecting and arguing, he will bombard us with proverbs, with their strong impact and varied angles of attack. So he's saying the same things in this chapter and moving forward in the book, but he's just saying them with a different tone. He's using a different type of writing. Previous chapters in the book tended to be highly poetic and sort of like a philosophy professor at a university rambling on and waxing eloquent 
about life and the meaning of life. And now he's just about to just punch you on repeat. Truth, 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 truth. Little short proverbs, and we're going to try to take as many of them as we can tonight. Here's the big idea for Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 14. It is true. It's true that our lives under the sun are like smoke. It is also true that some things in life are better than others. Yes, your life is very short in the grand scheme of things. But in your very short life on this earth, you need to be a wise person and understand that some things are better than other things. Now, I want to offer a couple of words of explanation and then we'll get into the text. We're almost to the text. When I start to say to you, this is better than that, when we talk like that as human beings, most of the time we're talking about opinion, personal opinion, or personal preference. For example, we could talk about Cheetos. And I could say to you, you know, crunchy Cheetos really are better than the puffy ones. Because the puffy ones, they just dissolve and they get in your teeth and you don't even eat it. It's just it's like worse than the little things we use for the Lord's Supper, the little cracker. You know, it's just, it's no good. The puffy ones are no good. The crunchy ones are better. And then I could say to you, you know what's even better than the crunchy ones? The jalapeno crunchy ones. They're really good. We literally walked down the grocery store aisle this week and I looked at Brooke and I said, I could eat that whole bag before we get to the next aisle. I could just go straight through it. They're better than the originals. I could tell you, you've heard me say this before, I've told it to you before, that Jif is better than anything else that you want to throw at me. It's better than Peter Pan. It's better than any of the other stuff. I don't want any of that other stuff. This is better than that. I could say to you, uh, Chris Harrington will give me an amen on this one, summer is better than winter. Yes, summer is better than winter. And I know it's hot in Odessa in the summer, and I'm telling you, it's better than the cold. I like the summer better than the winter. So that's personal preference. Some of you, some of you, you were with me on the Cheetos. You got to be with me on the peanut butter. But some of you are thinking, I don't know. I kind of like winter. It gets really hot here in the summer. I'm not sure about that. Just personal preference. People argue about this athlete being better than that athlete. And I'm not going to wade into that in any kind of debate. I'm just giving you two examples. People say, was this guy better or was this guy better? Was that guy better or is that guy better? Well, maybe Wilt Chamberlain was better than both of them combined. I don't know. Who's better than who? People argue about this. People talk about books and movies. Are books better than movies? Is it better to read a book or better to go to the movie? And some of you are like me and you think if you could get the book with the movie popcorn and combine that... (laughs) That's the best. But again, that's personal preference. This is better than that. What we're about to look at in Ecclesiastes 7 is not debatable. It's not up for your opinion or your preference. And I'm just warning you right now that some of the things that I'm about to tell you and we're going to see in chapter 7, I'm going to say this is better than that. Everything inside of you is going to go, yeah, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure about that. And it takes wisdom to hear what the preacher is saying and what he's not saying. That's going to be one of the challenges tonight, to hear what he is saying and to be clear about what he's not saying. So, let me make one more word of clarification. When we, 
read this passage and we see this is better, this is better, this is better. The word group in English that we're talking about is good, better, best. And if English wasn't a mashup language, it would be good, gooder, goodest. Okay, That's the word group that we're talking about. But in English, we say good, better, best. So this is why I'm bringing this up to you. We're about to see about eight things. I think we've got eight on my list. In Ecclesiastes 7, this is better than this, this is better than this. That's how I'm going to present them to you. Some of them in the text are presented as this is better than that. Just there's one, there's another one, this one's better than that one. Some of them just say this one's not good. And some of them say this is good. But you understand in the flow of the passage, what he's saying is, whether it's explicit or implied, this thing is better than that thing. And he's making a comparison all the way through. Now, I put the funny English words up there on the screen so that you have in your mind the root idea of good. Good. Because if you remember, last week we looked at Ecclesiastes 5. We started in verse 18 where he says, I have seen, I've seen this to be good. And then he says, I've seen something to be evil in chapter 6, verse 1. Good and evil. And we talked about those ideas, good and evil, and we drew a connection back to the Garden of Eden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we just made the point that in laying out the things he lays out at the end of 5 and through 6, he's drawing your attention back to the early chapters of Genesis. This is not the first book written in the Bible, and this book is pulling from other books that are previous to it in the Bible. We also came to the end of chapter 6, and in verse 10, 11, 12, he keeps talking about man. Man, 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 man. Adam, 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 Adam. And he's using that word as opposed to other pronouns he could have used or other nouns he could have used to draw your attention back to the book of Genesis, to the first Adam, Adam. And he's trying to make you think about this wisdom in light of the book of Genesis. So what I'm saying to you in this section on this is better than that, think in your mind good and gooder. And understand that what's being presented to you is wisdom, and you are going to have to decide, do I believe that this is good wisdom or not? You understand, Adam and Eve had the same temptation. God said, don't eat of the tree. And the serpent said, no, I really think you ought to eat of it. And had a decision to make. Whose wisdom are we going to listen to? The Lord's or the serpent's? And what I'm saying to you tonight is the preacher's about to lay out some wisdom and say, this is better than that. And you have a decision to make. Am I going to go with my gut? Am I going to go with the world? Or am I going to believe him when he says that this actually is better than that? So, there's the setup. Look at Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to read verse 1 to 12, and then we'll pick up 13 and 14 at the end. Ecclesiastes 7, 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. 
Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of faith, uh, face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Father, tonight we pray that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word. And we pray that you would give us understanding to process what the preacher is saying to us. And we pray that you would give us hearts that are willing uh, to believe your word and your wisdom uh, over the world and over ourselves and over uh, what we may have always thought or believed or felt to be true. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we've got eight comparisons that we're going to walk through. We will not spend equal time on all of them. I likely will not answer every question you have about the verses that we just read, but I do want you to see how these comparisons play out. So the first is this, a good reputation is better than a flawless appearance. A good reputation is better than a flawless appearance. This is verse 1a, a good name is better than precious ointment. When he says a good name, he doesn't mean like, George or Philip, he's talking about your reputation. Do you have a good name in the community? Do you have a good name amongst your family and friends? Do you have a good name amongst the people you go to school with or you work with? Do you have a good reputation? And he says that is better than precious ointment. And really that term, precious ointment, is basically a cosmetic term from an ancient Hebrew culture. So he's talking about beauty products and things that will make you smell good and things that will make you look good. And he's saying, understand that it is better to have a good reputation, to be a person of good character, than to have a flawless appearance. Do Americans care about appearances? Hair dye is a $40 billion a year industry. I do not contribute anything to that industry. <laughs> But some of y'all are contributing a lot. Plastic surgery, 10 billion. Fad diets, 4 billion. Gym memberships, 32 billion. Cosmetics, 50 billion. Clothing, 300 billion. It's a lot of billions. It's a lot of money we spend on appearances. Now, what is he saying and what is he not saying? Is he saying that you should try to look as horrible as possible? No. 
Is he saying that the middle school boys should not wear precious ointment, a.k.a. deodorant? Nope. In fact, I put that in my notes. Jake, tell the middle school boys, keep wearing precious ointment. Doesn't say precious ointment is bad. It just says there is something better. There's something better. A good reputation is better than a flawless appearance. Now, when we talk about a flawless appearance and precious ointment and cosmetics and the surgeries and all the other stuff, you probably get a, a picture of a kind of person in your head and you think, oh, those kinds of people, those kinds of people are obsessed with appearances. And I would just point out to you that there's a lot of different ways to be obsessed with your appearance. A lot of different ways. The, the, I don't know if there's any difference in all these, but like the grunge, the goth, the emo person that is trying to look terrible, you understand, they're obsessed with their appearance. They're trying very hard to look the way that they look. The hipster, the young person who wears the goofy glasses and the shoes, you're like, where'd you get those shoes? Those look weird. I don't know what that is. Jeans, did you paint those jeans on? What's going on right now? There's lots of different ways to be obsessed with your appearance, and it could be one standard of flawless beauty, perfection, whatever, or it could be an entirely different subculture's understanding of outward appearances. But what the author of this book, the preacher, is saying to us is that a good reputation is better than a flawless appearance. Number two, this one's hard to wrestle with. The day of death is better than the day of birth. That's what he says in verse 1b. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And then he explains it in verse 2, 3, and 4. It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. This is the end of all mankind. The end is the house of mourning. That's where we all end up. The living will lay this to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. By sadness of faith, the heart, uh, face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. And I'll be honest with you, I read that this week. This is not abstract for me or for our church here at the beginning of this year. We've had our about a two-year quota of funerals for our church just here at the beginning of this year since we've been studying Ecclesiastes. There's nothing abstract about any of this. This is all very real. And for some of us, it's a very emotional thing. It's still a very raw thing. And so I thought to myself as I read this, are you really telling me, preacher, the preacher who wrote this, preacher, are you really telling me that it's better to spend an afternoon at Sunset Funeral Home than to go to the maternity ward at ORMC? Is that really what you're telling me? You really want me to buy that? The house of mourning is better than the house of rejoicing and feasting and celebration. And I think the answer to that question is yes and no. Yes and no. Obviously, there are some things that aren't better. But you and I need to hear that there is something that is better about going to the house of mourning as opposed to the house of feasting. And I think it's this. Mourning a death is a better opportunity to number our days than celebrating a birth. Now again, I want to be clear about this better, this is better than that comparison business. He's not saying that the day of birth is a bad day. It's a good day. 
you ever held somebody's newborn baby or your own newborn baby or your own newborn grandbaby, you say, this is a good day. It's a good day. And you probably, when you hold that baby, you probably find yourself numbering your days, thinking, I'm not this old. It's been a long time since I was that little. I can't believe I was that little. Now I'm this big. It takes a lot of precious ointment to make me look good when I'm this big. What in the world? Little baby, so cute, just came out cute. It's amazing. And maybe you number your days and you think, what would I do if I could go back and be this? I mean, you can do all of those things on the day of birth. But the preacher is saying there is something valuable in going to the house of mourning. There's something valuable in the day of death. When you go to Sunset Funeral Home or you sit in this room for a memorial service. And I think that thing is in the middle of verse 2. This is the end of all mankind. The house of mourning is an opportunity for you to remember Hebel. Smoke. It won't be long. And that's where I'll be. And I need to start there and work backwards to determine how I'm going to live my life today. Hold your spot in Ecclesiastes 7. Just look with me at Psalm 90. Just read it quickly. Psalm 90. Moses wrote this psalm. And I just want you to read along with me, follow along with me, and I want you to think about Ecclesiastes 2 and 3. What do we gain for all our toil under the sun? Hebel, Hebel, it's all Hebel. Smoke, smoke, we're all on the clock. Listen to what Moses says. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Hebel does not apply to the Lord. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight is but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream like grass that's renewed in the morning, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, in the light of your presence. The book of Ecclesiastes ends by saying, here's the conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments because he will bring every secret thing into judgment. That's what Moses is saying. You've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. I would just remind you that the man who wrote that psalm wandered around in a desert for 40 years with a vast multitude of people knowing that all of them of a certain generation would die 
in a certain period of time and that none of them would set foot in the promised land. You think you go to a lot of funerals. Do the math on how many Israelites came out of Egypt and how many had to die every day on this wandering through the wilderness. If anybody knew that life is toil and trouble and then our years pass away like a sigh, it was Moses. And the preacher, the author of Ecclesiastes, I think has read the Torah, book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I think he's probably read Psalm 90 as he gives us these reflections about numbering our days. David Gibson says this, the preacher has learned that there are two types of people at the funeral. The fool sits there thinking how unbearably grim this is and can't wait to be outside in the sunshine and back to what he's doing to get out to the pub in the evening. The wise person sits in the funeral home and stares at the coffin and realizes one day it will be his turn. Number three, the rebuke of a wise person is better than the laughter of fools. This is verse five and six. It's better, he says, for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. As the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is hebel, vanity. It's smoke. How many of you like to be rebuked? Not a lot of hands up. Most of us don't like it when a Bible study or a sermon or a podcast or a book rebukes us. We think, ow, that hurts. Preacher, I didn't bring my, my boots today and you're getting on my toes. You're meddling in my business. We don't like that. You know what we like even less is when one of our friends rebukes us. Think, Who do you think you are? I know you. You know what we like even less? When one of our family members rebukes us, a spouse, a parent, a child, none of us like to be rebuked, and so we need to hear what the preacher's saying. He's not saying that laughter is bad. He's not saying you should be sour and don't laugh and be serious all the time. It's not what he's saying. He's just saying the rebuke of a wise person, not the rebuke of a fool, the rebuke of a wise person is better than laughing it up and yucking it up with the fools. The rebuke of a wise person is better than the laughter of fools. Number four, having integrity is better than being guilty of corruption. This is verse seven. It's one of those places where the comparison is implicit rather than explicit. So verse 7 says, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. So he's talking about how you might be tempted in various situations to do bad, wicked things that hurt other people, oppress other people. You might take a bribe under the table, something that's not yours to take, to do something you should not do. And there's a consequence. There's a, a victim in these situations. There's other passages in the book of Proverbs and the Bible that talk about how oppression affects the victim. This passage is saying you taking the bribe, oppressing someone else, it affects your mind and your heart. And it would be better, this is the implied part, it would be better for you to have less plus integrity, a good name, than to be a wicked person, a greedy person, an envious person, which we talked about previously in the book of Ecclesiastes, 
and as he describes it in chapter 7, to succumb to madness and a corrupt heart. So integrity is better than being guilty of corruption. Number five, the end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. Verse 8a, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. On this one, I want to remind you about how Proverbs work. This will serve you well as you read the book of Proverbs as well as the book of Ecclesiastes. Proverbs describe how life generally works. They're general truths. They're generally true, so you can just throw this out as proverbial wisdom, and you can understand this is how life usually works, how it normally works. If you raise up in the child, train up a child in the way he or she should go, when they're old, they won't depart from it. Is that magic? Is it a promise? No, it's just a general truth about how family life works. If the parents pass the faith on to the child, train them up, raise them up in the way that they should go, invest in them, disciple them, teach them, a la Deuteronomy 6, then what you can expect most of the time is that when those children are old, they won't depart from it. It's not a promise and it's not magic. That's not how Proverbs work. So when this proverb says, the end of a thing is better than the beginning, please do not quote this to your coworker who's getting divorced and say, you know, the Bible says the end is better than the beginning, so... I mean, that's not, you understand what I'm saying? Don't quote this to somebody who's lost a loved one and say, you know, the Bible says the end is better than the beginning. And that's not really the point that the author's trying to make. Somebody gets a pink slip at work. You pat them on the back and say, hey, Ecclesiastes 7, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. It was nice knowing you on your way. That's not the point. So you got to think about this, and you got to say to yourself, when you read something that seems a little bit counterintuitive, the biblical word would be meditate on this. Think about it. Run it through your brain. Chew on it and say to yourself, how is the end of a thing better than the beginning of a thing? In what way? Think about some examples. So I, I wrote down a few. Uh, is it good? Is it good at the beginning of a year to start a Bible reading plan? a good thing. Guess what's better? Finishing it. Some of you already flamed out when you got to the tabernacle stuff in Exodus. Or maybe you plowed through and you're an overachiever and you got to Leviticus and now you're being lazy and you think, I don't want to. What's better, to begin or to end? Well, to end is better. Is a wedding a good thing? It's a good thing. Good thing. You know what's better? 10-year anniversary? 20, 30, 40, 50? That's better. Better. End of a thing's better than the beginning of a thing. We baptize people Sunday. Is that a good thing? Good thing. You, y'all clapped. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's exciting. Baptism's good. Guess what's better? Five years of following Jesus is better. 10's better, 15's better, however long the Lord gives you, it's better. It's better to finish. It's better to be like Paul and say, I ran the race, I finished the course, I did what God laid out in front of me. It's better to do that than to say, well, I got dunked at VBS when I was four. Started, didn't finish. The end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. Number six, patience is better than a quick temper. 
8b. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. I don't have a lot of comment here other than to say I probably need to hear this verse. And this verse does go to meddling in our lives when it connects the issues of pride and anger. Connects those two together. Just in the wording, talking about in your spirit, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. You, you talk to people who just say, man, I just got a quick temper. That's just how I am. You can say to them, you're a fool. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Anger lodges in the heart of fools. Patience is better than a quick temper. Number seven, the rest of contentment is better than the restlessness of nostalgia. This is another one where the comparison is not explicit, it's implicit. What is explicit is verse 10, say not, why were the former days better than these? I bet everyone in this room has said that. I don't care how old you are. Some of you are old gray heads. Some of you are not yet old gray heads. Some of you are old gray heads, but you're part of the $40 billion hair dyeing industry, so you're not yet old gray heads. All sorts of heads in here. Some of you are like me. You're just a bald head. But you've said this and you've thought this. It's not as good. Music's not as good today as it used to be. Have you listened? It's terrible. Movies are not as good. They're just not as good. Athletes are not as good. All those NBA guys sitting out all those games, they're not as good. Not as good. Young people today, they're not as good as young people when I was in school. Teachers today, do you know how terrible teachers are these days? They used to be really, really, it's not this, I mean, whatever you want to say. We all think this, we all say this, and it's nostalgia. It's nostalgia. It's the lie in your head that says if you could go back in time, you'd be happy. If you could go back in time, you'd be happy. First of all, you can't go back in time. So it's a trick. You can't do it. Secondly, the good old days were not as good as you remember them being. They weren't. They may have been good, but they're probably not as good as you remember them being. C.S. Lewis talks about nostalgia. He has a book called The Weight of Glory. He talks about nostalgia. And he says something really interesting. He says, nostalgia is a temptation. It's a temptation to not be content in the present and to think if I could only go back, that's the only time that I can be happy and content. And you have to fight that temptation. And for this group, as opposed to the youth upstairs, let me tell you something tricky about nostalgia. The longer you live, the more you're going to fight that temptation or face that temptation. Because the longer you live, the more you have in your rearview mirror to look back on and say, oh, that was better, that was better, that was better. That was better. That was better. All that stuff was better. There's more behind you to look back on. The five-year-olds down in the preschool wing, they're looking back on six months ago. Oh, it's about the same. You're looking back on a lot more 
And that temptation is going to grow. And whatever stage of life you're in, that pull of nostalgia, that temptation to just sort of live in a fantasy land of I could be happy if I could go back. I could be content if I could go back. It's going to grow over time. C.S. Lewis says it's not just a temptation. He says it's also a gift from God. It's a gift from God. And he says it's a gift from God. He talks about the idea that we saw in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God has set eternity in man's heart. And he's basically saying God in his graciousness is not allowing you to find every bit of contentment that you might find now. He's making your heart restless. St. Augustine many moons ago said our heart is restless until it finds rest in God. Not in the past. Not an idea of what the past... If I could only go back, then I could find contentment. No, no, no. That's not where you find contentment. The rest of contentment in God is better than the restlessness of nostalgia. Number eight, wisdom is better than folly. Wisdom is good. Verse 11, it's good. It's an advantage. To you, if you have wisdom, that's a positive thing. The protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So this is a good thing. The implicit part is the folly here and he's just saying wisdom is a good thing. Your life is short. You're not going to be here forever. Our lives are passing. 70, 80 years, Moses says, like a sigh. But in that short span of life under the sun, it's better to be wise than to be a fool. I like what Gibson says. He says, wisdom can never achieve the kind of control over your life and destiny that you seek. That's not what wisdom is. Wisdom doesn't give you the ability to control your life. And somewhere in all of us, there's that desire to control life and to manage it. And for things to be predictable. That's not what wisdom does. Wisdom doesn't make you omnipotent. Wisdom doesn't make you omniscient. It doesn't give you control over your life and your destiny. But it can help you with your money. And as long as you're here, you might as well be wise. It can help you with impatience and with anger and even with nostalgia. So it's valuable, even though it has limits. All right, I want to give you a quote from Zach Eswine. And then we'll pivot to the last couple of verses here. He says, the preacher of joy keeps our gaze on that which breaks us under the sun. Remember, he's not yelling. Okay, When you read the verses we just read, he's not yelling at you, the preacher. Your preacher, me, this preacher, author of Ecclesiastes, he's not yelling at you. His face isn't red. His eyes are not uh, full of bombast or anger. In this way, the moment resembles halftime. Remember, this is a transition point in the book. Kind of like halftime. But... The preacher's approach resembles very little how coaches generally motivate players. He's not throwing chairs, he's not screaming, he's not threatening. He's like a server who puts a full meal on our table, slides it in front of us, looks us in the eye, and deliberately says calmly, watch out, your plate of enchiladas is hot. Don't let the calm words of poetic speech lull you into disregard for them. If you touch the plate without care, it'll burn you. If you don't want to be wise, there's a consequence. That's how it works. Make no mistake, 
These words are full of nourishment, yes, but also full of heat. When we walk outside the church doors, mixed messages and money pressures assail us. What he's talking about is when you leave this place, you're going to have to fight about whose wisdom you're going to listen to. Because the world's going to start hitting you. As soon as we're done, your flesh and the world are going to start hitting you with worldly, sinful, demonic wisdom. And you're going to have to fight to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Word of God says that this is better than that. There's something better than this. So let's look at the last couple of verses. Verse 13. Consider the work of God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Let me give you a few thoughts and we'll wrap up. Number one, the preacher calls his reader to consider the work of God. As I looked at my notes this afternoon, I wished that instead of the preacher calls his reader, I would have said the preacher commands his reader because that's what he's doing. Now, we're Americans and we're pragmatists at heart and what we want is, preacher, tell me what to do. When I leave this place, what do I do? Make it easy. One, two, three, four. Be better if you could put it in a diagram. Be even better if you could make me a YouTube video where I can pause it. One, two, three, four. I want to know what to do. The Bible doesn't always tell us what to do. Sometimes it says, think, consider. Just don't do anything for a second. Just stop. And consider the work of God. Phil Riken, the command here is to consider. You want to know what to do? That's what you do. You consider. To make careful observation of the way God works. Then the preacher asks a rhetorical question. Who can straighten out what God has made crooked? The answer, of course, is no one. Things are the way that God wants them to be. And we don't have the ability to overrule the Almighty. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. One of the things you consider here is that God is sovereign over all of our days. Over all of our days. If God makes something crooked, not as straight as you might like it to be, you can't change that. Prayer's not a magical formula where you change all the things in your life that you don't like. People sometimes think that. Sometimes we wish that, but you know from experience, if you've been a Christian for five minutes, that that's not how it works. People say all the time, oh, prayer, powerful, powerful. Lots of people pray about lots of things and nothing changes. God hears prayers. God can answer prayers. God can change things. There's no inherent power in prayer. Consider the work of God. God is the powerful one. Our prayers don't have any inherent power to them. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what He has made crooked? 
Dwayne Garrett. I've told you he's my Old Testament professor from seminary. He says, God is in control of the times and nothing can be done to resist his will. God's in control. If he makes something away, you can't unmake it. God can unmake it, but you can't unmake it. God's sovereign over all of our days. Now, some people hear that, and they just slide. You remember we talked earlier? You only live once, carpe diem. What's the other one? Despair, depression, discouragement. Some people hear this, and they just slide straight into the despair and the discouragement, and they say, well, then what is the point in anything? And I appreciate what Riken says. He says, far from driving us to despair, the sovereignty of God gives us hope. Not despair, but hope through all the trials of life. We do suffer the frustration of life in a fallen world. Translation, sometimes your path is crooked and you can't get the crook out. We do suffer the frustration of life in a fallen world, but the Bible promises that God has a plan to set us free from all of this futility. And that as he carries out this plan, he's working all things together for our good. That's Romans 8, which we read earlier. God is sovereign over all our days. Secondly, we should thank God on our good days and seek God on our bad days. That's what verse 14 essentially says. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God made the one as well as the other. Why? Why did he make the day of prosperity and the, the day of adversity? So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So that man might realize, my life is Hebel. It's just smoke. God is from everlasting to everlasting. God's the one who's going to bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil, Ecclesiastes 12. God's the one that we're called to fear, Ecclesiastes 3 and 5. Thank God on our good days and seek Him on our bad days. Now, we started off saying Ecclesiastes is not the first book in the Bible. We talked about the connection back to Genesis and this good and evil and this wisdom being presented and you have to decide the wisdom. And that's true. You've seen what the preacher says in chapter 7 and you have to walk away and say, well, I believe the wisdom of God or well, I believe the wisdom of me, the wisdom of the world. It's not the first book in the Bible. It's also not the last book in the Bible. So we'll end with this thought. The cross, the cross gives us a clearer perspective on suffering. The cross gives us a clearer perspective on suffering. So if you keep reading past Ecclesiastes, you'll get through Song of Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Limitations and Ezekiel and Daniel and all the prophets. And you get to the New Testament. You get to the stories about Jesus. And if you keep reading through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, you get to the end of those stories, you read about Jesus suffering. Jesus suffering. God, who took on human flesh. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. The Word become flesh. That's Matthew 1 and John 1. Basic Christology. Jesus is God, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God in human flesh. Truly God, truly man. He suffered. He suffered. He didn't shun it. He didn't run from it. He didn't avoid it. He didn't hide from it. He suffered. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned its shame. Jesus understands what it's like to have a crooked path in front of you. 
He has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. And in the mystery of God's providence, the Father accepted the suffering of the Son as the means of our salvation and our redemption. That changes the way you think about suffering because you understand God, who from eternity past to eternity future is God, and He is not subject to this Hebel stuff that I wrestle with. In an incredible mystery, He does understand suffering. The Son suffered for us. And God in His providence intends to use suffering in our lives to make us more like His Son. God intends to use a crooked path that he puts in front of you to make you more like Jesus. Jesus suffered, so we should expect to suffer. God's going to put that path in front of you to grow you and to change you. So you can look at Romans 8, which we read earlier. It says, Paul says, I'm convinced that the suffering now, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. The glory to be revealed is better. That's an Ecclesiastes 7 idea. This is better than that. It doesn't mean the suffering's just nothing, but it means there's something better. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul talks about a light, momentary affliction that we experience in our suffering. Compared, there's a comparison again, to the glory that will be revealed to God's people. James and Peter. Both say, count it joy and rejoice when you suffer. Because God's at work in your life in that moment and through that experience of a crooked path that you can't uncrook. Revelation 14, blessed are those who die in the Lord. Blessed are those who die in the Lord. Father, tonight... We thank you for your word. And we find in Ecclesiastes 7 wisdom that goes against our intuition and our gut. It goes against the world. It goes against popular culture. It goes uh, against what many of us might assume to be true. And Lord, there's things in this chapter that are hard for us to wrap our mind around. We ask that you would give us wisdom and Uh, Lord, really, we ask that you would give us humility to hear and to listen and to submit to your word. Uh, We're thankful that uh, we have this book in the Bible that is so honest. Um, We need honest talk in our lives, and so we thank you for Ecclesiastes. And God, we thank you that it's not the last book in the Bible. We thank you that in the fullness of time you sent your son and that he suffered for us. And that he's at work in us, uh, even now, even through our suffering. And that he's promised to come back for us and to reveal his glory fully and finally to his people. And we long for that day. And uh, until that day comes, we just ask that you would give us uh, the eyes of faith to see what is true and what is real. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.